always have, come from a musical family. My dad's a musician. He can play pretty much with anything with strings on it. Uh, my brother and I both play multiple instruments. It's, it's a lifelong hobby. It's something I enjoy. I love all different kinds of music. Uh, I love making music. There's lots of times where I wish I was playing guitar and somebody else was preaching. Music's just a big part of my life. As it relates to church, music has played an incredibly important role uh, in educating people about theology and using music as a means to worship God through. In fact, right now with the Asbury Revival, uh, the main thing that everybody's saying about it um, is this, you know, these college students are just pouring in there. We're days into this thing. It's really cool. Uh, but it's really being led by music. Music's a big deal. There, there's not a lot of teaching there. There's just some students sharing their testimony, reading scriptures, and then they're going back to singing, and, and we're seeing some big things happen there. And music is cool because you can learn a lot about God through music within the church. And that's definitely been true for me because many, many, many years ago, probably right from the very beginning, I learned a truth from a song that I still believe today. Uh, and I'm going to sing the song, or at least say the song, and I bet you can help me finish the line because it says that Jesus loves me, this I know, which I believe. And then the second line is what? For the Bible tells me so. And I believe the first part of that statement you see on the screen to be 100% true. Jesus loves me. But the second part of that song lyric has created a lot of problems for me. And before you're scared and you decide to get up and walk out and call me a heretic, give me about 20 minutes to explain because it'll take that long. Um, I love this song. I sing this song with my kids, Wilderness Worship. Our team has led this song from the stage, and I hope we teach it to every kid in our children's ministry. But while that song taught me truth at a very early age, eventually it began to raise some questions in my life. And I remember the first time it happened, uh, it was in, I know it was in 1993 because it's when Jurassic Park came out. And I was an 11-year-old kid that was already into dinosaurs, and I just took it to the next level, right? Like, we were there on the opening day. We had tickets early. I was all about it. And I remember telling my grandparents about it, and my grandmother said, well, you know dinosaurs aren't real. And I was like, well, I know, like, the ones in the movie aren't real. But, like, I mean, dinosaurs were real. And she was like, no, it's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. They're not real. I was like, Grandma. Like, I've seen bones. Like, they took us on a school field trip. Like, I went to the museum, like, pretty sure they were real, Grandma. She's like, no, there's nothing about dinosaurs in the Bible. It's not real. And I was like, wait, what? You got to pick dinosaurs or Jesus? Like, that was a big decision as an 11-year-old kid. I remember my junior year in high school. I was very vocal about my faith in high school, and I had a teacher that I adored. She was a history teacher. It's one of my favorite things. And we had a very mutual respect for each other. She treated me like an adult. I thought she hung the moon. And we were talking at the end of class one day, and the, the topic of religion and faith came up, and she said she was not a believer, which really shocked me. I thought every school teacher in East Texas had to be a Christian. I thought that's like how it worked. And she asked me this question, and she said, Travis, do you really think that somebody got swallowed by a whale and lived for three days? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, I would still say yeah to that question, even though I've spent, at this point in my life, hours, if not days, actually studying the book of Jonah and understanding some context and language behind it all. So I'd still say yes to that question. But for the very first time at, like, 16, 17 years old, I, I realized how crazy it sounded. Right? I realized, like, yeah, I, I do believe something that's kind of hard to believe. 
And as I got older, here's what I had to reconcile in my own heart and my own mind. I certainly believe that Jesus does love me, and I certainly believe that the Bible does tell me so. But, 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 this was my big hang-up. Is the Bible the only reason that I know that God loves me? Because there seems to be a lot of things in the Bible that I have legitimate questions about. And if I'm going to ask some questions about some things in the Bible, this is just the way I'm wired, I'm going to question everything in the Bible. And I don't think I'm the only one that's dealt with this. I don't think I'm isolated in this. In fact, this is why we're doing this whole series about can't believe in God, because you, like me, might have found yourselves kind of stuck in the middle. The ideas of the Bible and Christianity following Jesus, they, they seem a little bit unsettling. We talked about the first week that just because something's unsettling doesn't mean it's not true. Uh, but all of us have big questions. And maybe you were in an environment where you were actually discouraged from asking those questions. I get that. But the thought of embracing the ideas of atheism, that's not a real settling thing either. If you think that there's more to who you are than just biology and chemistry ruled by the laws of physics, if you attribute value, if you think morals, anything about morality, there's so many things there that atheism doesn't have an answer to. And so the ideas of Christianity can produce doubt in our lives. We doubt if any of it's true, but the whole idea of atheism is, it just kind of leads us to a place of despair. And so my generation kind of walked away from all of it. In fact, at this point in American history, about a quarter of all Americans, more so, 35 to 40 percent of my generation, would consider themselves religious non-affiliates. They, they, don't, they wouldn't call themselves atheists. They sure wouldn't call themselves Christians. They just don't want anything to do with any of it. And I found myself the last 15 to 20 years having a lot of conversations with people who walked away from Christianity and there seems to be kind of some reoccurring themes in that. And so last week, and if you missed it, you can listen to it, iTunes, Spotify, it's all in there. We talked about the to somebody told me so, God, that somewhere along the way, somebody told you what God was like. Or you just drew your own conclusion to what God might be like. And then you quit believing in that God. And we talked about some, what are some of those gods are. The secret service God that just makes sure everything's going good behind the scenes. On-demand God that's kind of like genie in a bottle, just pops out answers your request exactly how you ask him, then goes back in the bottle. We talked about goosebump God that gives us goosebumps, gives us all the feels, guilt God that beats us up, and then the weird anti-science God that pits the idea of God against the scientific community. And I, again, would say if you quit believing in any of those gods, good, because none of them ever existed. This week, and I told you I was going to do it last week, this week I want to talk about the Bible told me so Jesus. Because I talk to people that deal with this idea all the time. Many people who lost their faith or are losing faith, and this is always a part of that story. Now today, fair warning, I'm not going to go long, but I'm going to go fast because today is complicated. So you need to tune in if you're searching on Amazon for what you're buying somebody for their birthday or you're on Facebook, you're not going to hear what I had to say. And it's not because you're not smart, it's just complicated. All right? There's a lot of information that I'm about to cover. But I really believe this is one of the most overlooked parts of the Christian faith, and I think a lot of you in this room have never heard this before. I really believe that. And again, as I delve into this, I, I want to remind you, if you don't believe anything I say, Google is your friend, right? I'm not making any of this stuff up. I wouldn't do that. I'm not smart enough to do that. So, so listen, 
because it's a lot of information. Because many of you learned that Jesus loves you, this you know, for the Bible tells you so, and that was the, the foundation of your childhood faith, but you grew up. But when you grew up, your faith didn't, and now you're stuck with this childhood version of faith that doesn't answer adult questions very well. And if Jesus loves you, this you know, for the Bible tells you so, that, that kind of gets problematic for adults. Because the implication there is that the Bible is the reason that we believe that Jesus loves us. Because it's in the Bible, that's the reason we believe it. And early in my preaching career, uh, probably in my mid-20s, I had a great set of groupies. I had this set of like 70, 80-year-old women that just loved me. All right, they, they would write me sweet notes. They would cook for me. They would like, they just took care of me. They loved me, and I loved them. And one of them brought me a gift, and it was very well-intentioned because she knew that I like bumper stickers. Every vehicle I've ever had is covered with bumper stickers. And she ordered a bumper sticker from like cheesychristianbumperstickers.com, and this is what it said. It says, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And she was a, just knew I was going to put that on the back of my F-350, and I didn't. I didn't hang that up there. Because I was kind of presented with that idea of God as a kid. Well, why is that true? Well, because it's in the Bible. If it's in the Bible, it's got to be true. The problem with this is if the Bible is the foundation of your faith, as the Bible goes, as your, as your, your faith in the validity of those documents goes, so goes your faith. You, th- you throw the baby out with the bathwater. And that's maybe why you went off to college and you came back with no faith. You were introduced to somebody that wasn't raised like you were, and they presented you with some information that made you start to doubt parts of the Bible, and, and you started to see that things didn't add up. Because the Bible, if you look at the Genesis 1 creation account, the genealogy alone would only go back about 6,000 years. And so for a lot of Christianity, they just assumed that the, the earth was 6,000 years old. But science would say that this planet we're on is 4.55 billion years old, and the universe itself is 14.5 billion years old. The Bible talks a lot about a mass exodus of Hebrew slaves from Egypt, but there's a lot of historians, including Egyptian historians, that would say there's absolutely no historical or archaeological evidence of that. We've all heard stories of Noah's Ark, but there are still scientists. There's, most of the scientific community has agreed that there was definitely some flood but there's been a lot of debate around that. And maybe you heard about the walls of Jericho falling down, but the, eva- the excavations of the city didn't really, you know, the information you were presented didn't look exactly like the Bible story you were told. And if that's true, your whole faith can become like a house of cards. If there's anything in the Bible that you perceive as being not true, then it all comes crashing down, right? And if the entire Bible isn't true, then the Bible isn't true. And if the Bible isn't true, then Christianity itself falls apart. And for my entire life, I've heard Christians defend the Bible as if it were the only way to defend Christianity was to defend the Bible. What I've discovered, and I think what most people that are intellectually honest would admit, is that it's really next to impossible to defend every little detail in the Old and New Testament. And if your Christianity hangs by the thread of proving that everything in the Bible is true, maybe you can hold on to that thread forever how many years you have left, but I really don't think that our kids and our grandkids and the next generation is going to be able to do that. 
if it puts the Bible at the center of the debate, and if everything rises and falls on whether or not, not part, but all of the Bible is true. And so what I want to explain to you today is that if you walked away from faith because you found out that there was a part of the Bible that was a little bit hard to defend, so you just walked away from all of it, there's a chance you might have walked away unnecessarily. Because you thought, if I can't trust all of it, I don't want to trust any of it, and I get that. I get that. I'm just saying you might, you might have made a mistake. So I want you to listen really carefully. One, Christianity does not exist because of the Bible. This is huge. This is such a big deal. Christianity does not exist because of the Bible. And if you forget everything else I said today, remember this one. Christianity does not exist because of the Bible any more than you exist because of your birth certificate. Your birth certificate documents that something happened. But if you lost your birth certificate, you do not go out of existence, right? You do not exist because of your birth certificate. Your birth certificate documents your birth. And I'm going to talk specifically today about the New Testament, and I'm going to address some of the Old Testament stuff here at the end. But the New Testament documents that something happened. So you need to know that Christianity does not exist because of the Bible. It's actually the opposite. The Bible exists because of Christianity. The Bible that you might have on your coffee table or your parents gave you if from when you got baptized, the one that you brought with you today that's leather-bound with your name stamped on it, the one that's in your app on your iPhone, it exists because of the Christian faith. In order to explain this, i got to do a little history lesson, and we're going to look at an early church timeline. This is the Gregorian calendar when Jesus was alive. This isn't the, the dating system that they used. This started about 500 years after the birth of Jesus in that A.D. thing. Uh, dating the history of the birth of Christ. That didn't start until the 16th century. But most historians would agree that around 2 or 3 B.C. was when Jesus was actually born. And then Jesus was crucified in 30 A.D. He was 33 years old. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. And a few days and weeks after that, that the church itself was launched. And people just kind of flooded into the streets of Jerusalem to tell everybody that they had seen a risen Jesus. And their message initially was just like, hey, you crucified him. God raised him from the dead. We've seen him, so you owe somebody an apology. All right, y'all y'all mess this one up. And a lot of people began to see Jesus for who he was. Thousands of people became a part of the church. There was no official membership. They didn't have a building, none of that stuff. This was all in 30 A.D. The next big important date in Christianity isn't referenced anywhere in the Bible, but it's 70 A.D., it's a huge, huge date, all right, August 6, 70 AD. About four years before this, uh, Vespasian rolled through Galilee. He enslaved all the Jews, and he sent all the leaders and troublemakers to Jerusalem. Then he goes back to Rome to become the emperor, and he leaves his son Titus to kind of clean up the mess that he had created. And on August 6, 70 AD, Titus surrounds Jerusalem, builds a wall around it, uh, or builds a ditch around the wall. The walls are breached. The Roman army invades. They burn down the temple. They enslaved all the Jews. They eventually banned Jews from even coming back to the city. Thousands of Jews were crucified. Thousands were shipped off to the slave market. It was a horrible day in Jewish history. And, and many of you don't know this, but that's the actual day that the old Jewish temple model was completely null and void. Nobody's made animal sacrifices since then. That's when it was over. This is a big deal. 
And you might ask, well, why doesn't it talk about that in the Bible? Why was none of that stuff mentioned? Probably because when this collection of writings that we call the New Testament was written, it hadn't happened yet. It hadn't happened yet. The church was launched in 30 AD, and guys like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John began to write gospel accounts, historical documentation of the life of Jesus and early church history, the book of Acts. And then Paul would begin to write all his letters to different churches in different regions. So between the years 49 AD and what I would believe, there's a lot of people a lot smarter than me that wouldn't agree with this exactly, between the years 49 AD and 70 AD is when all of these books, letters, and writings were written. Okay, so there, there's some really smart people that would say it may be as late as 89 AD, but most scholars agree with that 51-year window. I'm sorry, 21-year window. All of these accounts were written by different people. They were not together in the same room when they did it. They were written during the time when eyewitnesses of all of this stuff were still alive. And you're going to hear people argue still today, this argument's out there, it's very prevalent, that all of these documents were written after 90 AD. But I just want you to know there's zero, zero historical evidence for that, none. And the reason I think, there's a little bit of speculation here on my part, but I think the reason that people want to push back the writings to 90 AD is that we know through social science and history, it takes about 70 years for a legend or a fable, something that didn't really happen, to become history. It takes about 70 years for that to happen. And so in an attempt to explain all of these accounts of raising people from the dead and making blind men see and coming back from the grave, in order to try to write all those things off as myth, legend, and fairy tale, they try to say that all of those things were written at least 70 years after they actually happened. Because if these accounts were written after all the eyewitnesses' accounts were dead, then there's a pretty good case that it didn't happen. But all historical evidence points to the fact that they were written earlier. All of Paul's letters were written in the 50s, from 52 to 55. Luke's account was written in the early 50s or possibly late 40s. And there's zero evidence to the contrary. Like, history is pretty settled on this. The only reason to try and push those dates back is in an attempt to explain away the miracles and the resurrection because it, it can't be a fable if we still have eyewitnesses. Now, none of this is original thought. I didn't come to all these conclusions on my own. I've done a lot of studying and a lot of reading. And so I want to just give you some resources. If you want to dive into this, even further, the first one I kind of do with a heavy heart. I would consider him my friend, although I've never met him. His name is Dr. Michael Heiser. He is one of the leading Bible scholars alive today. Unfortunately, we don't have much more time with him. He has pancreatic cancer. He has a huge following of people. I'm part of a big Facebook community that shares his lectures, and he, he used to comment with us and talk with us, but he hasn't been on in several months. But he has written numerous books has recorded hundreds and hundreds of hours of podcasts and YouTube lectures. He's one of the guys that helped do all the Logos Bible software. Very credible guy, and he'll jump into any weird thing you want to. Dr. Heiser is great. It'd be a great place to start if you want to look into some of this stuff yourself. The next one is a book called Stealing from God by Frank Turek, and it really just talks about this exact topic, the reliability of the New Testament documents, because if they are reliable, then that's a pretty big game changer. The last book is a book called Irresistible. This is the best uh, Christian ministry book that I've read in the last four or five years. And, and a lot of the way I've formatted this stuff kind of comes from that book. But if you want to dive into this stuff a little bit more, there's some places to start. 
But as a self-proclaimed Bible nerd, I read it all the time, I'm fixing to read you a verse, and there's verses like this all over the New Testament. They're all throughout it. They pin down historical context. They seem like just like useless details that don't really matter, but they were true. And the reason they're in there is because they are true, and it's easy to verify these things. None of this stuff reads like a fairy tale. None of this story reads like it was made up. It reads as a historical account. So in Luke 3, and again, there's a lot of verses like this. I'm just pulling one example out. It says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of two words that I can't pronounce, followed by a name I can't pronounce, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Again, seems like a long list of boring details. But I really think this was Luke's way of saying, hey, fact check me. It happened. Fact check me. I dare you. Go look into it for yourself. He's giving historical context. He's not saying a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. He, he's giving you the facts. And that's a risky thing to do if you're making a story up because it would be real easy to disprove. All of the New Testament documents, I believe, were written between 49 and 70 A.D., maybe as late as 89 A.D. And then, after all these documents were written, they started to be copied. And there's really nothing before this in human history to compare to this until the printing press, until the invention of the printing press. They started to copy these letters and books and accounts and distribute them all over the known world, from Jerusalem to Rome, Alexandria, Egypt, Constantinople, all around the Mediterranean Rim, and I want to ask you a question. What do you make a copy of? If you make a copy of something, why did you make a copy of it? To preserve it because it's important, right? It's important. Because these documents and these accounts and these letters were considered so important, they made a lot of copies. And because there are so many copies, we can confirm the authenticity. Now, most of my adult life, there's been this guy named Bart Ehrman that I actually think is really smart. He is a legit Bible scholar, also an atheist. Weird combo, that's what he chose. And he loves to talk about the fact that in these original manuscripts, like the copies of the original one, that there's all kind of different discrepancies. There's things that they're not the same as the other one that's supposed to be the same. And he loves to talk about that stuff. There's thousands of variances in those early manuscripts. But he's not so quick to point out the fact that none of those variances change the story at all. It's not like one version had a story where Jesus died on the cross and then somebody else had a version where Jesus died in a donkey wreck. That's not how it went down, okay? The, the, the facts of the story stay the same. Um, it, didn't, it didn't change the theology. It didn't change the story. It's just minor stuff like spelling mistakes and punctuation. And if you pick up pretty much any English Bible, if there is a bigger discrepancy than just a misspelled word, they're going to put that in there with a little asterisk, and they're going to say, you know, some manuscripts actually say this instead of what we said. And I think Christianity has always been quick to point out those discrepancies because there's never been any secrets. There, this wasn't like put together in a room, and they weren't hoping somebody was going to find out that they were making it all up later. That's not what this was. The variation in all those original manuscripts have no consequence on the message of the story. The men and women who copied these important documents, they didn't make copies of it because they thought it was inspired. They made copies of the Gospels because they believed they were true. And there was this huge explosion of literature around the life of Jesus that's never been recreated. It's unprecedented. 
And they were copied because it was important, and it was important because it was true. So let's go back to that church timeline real quick. After the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, after all the writings of the New Testament were complete, after the destroying of Jerusalem and the temple, the church continued to grow despite enormous persecution. And in 312 A.D., Constantine becomes the undisputed emperor of Rome, and he actually embraces Christianity. His mother was a Christian when it was illegal to be one, and he made Christianity the official language of the Holy Roman Empire, and really his motivation was because he thought it would unify the empire. What? That's still crazy, right? That somehow this weird spinoff of Judaism, despite all the persecution that they faced, had gained so much ground and influence that it became the unifying element of the Roman Empire 300 years later. It's a big deal. And so this is the point of me telling all all this stuff. Christianity thrived. Our faith thrived for 282 years before the Bible even existed. There was no Bible the way we think of the Bible. No one said, the Bible says it, so that settles it. That wasn't in anybody's vernacular. Christianity was not born because of the Bible. The Old Testament, all the Jewish scriptures, they were combined with the New Testament, but that didn't happen until 350 A.D. And even then, it was all written in Greek. It was really just for show. Nobody could afford one of those things. It was huge. It cost a fortune to have one of those things. But even then, it wasn't even referred to as the Bible for like 30 more years. And so before the Old and New Testament, which weren't called that previously, were combined to form what we call the Bible, Christianity had already replaced the entire pantheon of Roman gods, all the barbarian gods, most Egyptian gods. They had done all that before the Bible was ever even put together. First, second, and third century Christians believed that Jesus loved them before the Bible told them so. None of them ever held a Bible in their hand. Luke and John that wrote some of the gospel accounts, they believed that Jesus loved them. And Peter, that was one of the 12 disciples, he certainly believed that Jesus loved him. And James, the brother of Jesus, believed that Jesus loved him. And Paul, this incredible legal mind, former Pharisee, believed that Jesus loved him. But none of them believed it because of an infallible Old Testament or a non-contradicting New Testament. In fact, if you walked up to the Apostle Peter and you were like, Hey, man, listen, before you get all crazy on this following Jesus thing, Do you realize that there's no actual archaeological evidence for a worldwide global flood? Do you realize that the earth is likely more than 6,000 years old? I imagine Peter would look at you and say, I'm not really sure what you're talking about. But I know that I followed this guy for three years who lived like no other man had ever lived and smoked like no other man had ever spoke. And he was arrested and crucified, and we thought it was all over because he had said way too much about himself to just be a good teacher And then a bunch of women came and started talking about an empty tomb. And I went and looked at the empty tomb. But if I'm honest, I thought somebody stole the body. But a few days later, I actually had breakfast on the beach with a risen Jesus. And I have no idea how old the earth is. I don't know much about archaeological evidence. I'm just a fisherman. But the reason I follow Jesus is because I saw him die and then I saw him alive again. And for the first 300 years of Christianity, the debate was not centered on whether or not the book was true. The question was, did Jesus rise from the dead? And Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, Paul, all would say, yeah. Yeah, he certainly did. 
And so the success of the early church is only explained by the fact that they really believed that Jesus rose from the grave. And today, Christians believe that Jesus rose from the grave not because the Bible says it. Our faith is a lot more defensible than that. It's way, way better than that. And if your entire faith has been built around a book instead of the event of the resurrection, I'm sorry, you might have got sidetracked. The original version of our faith, the pre-Bible version of our faith, the early church version of our faith was a lot more defensible than that. It was endurable. It was fearless. It was compassionate. It was prosecutable. And it was compelling. So now that we're not all kids anymore, I would ask you to embrace a grown-up version of God and a grown-up version of your faith. And I take the Bible very, very, very seriously. I've kind of devoted my life to teach it. And I have varying beliefs about all these things that we've talked about today. But I still take the Old Testament really seriously. I believe it's inspired. You know why? The main reason is because Jesus took the Old Testament seriously. He talked about it a lot. He referenced it a lot. Without Jesus, the, the Old Testament would probably have just faded off into obscurity about the time that the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. But because Jesus came as fulfillment of the Old Testament law, he actually fulfilled those Old Testament promise, prophecies about his coming. We see the symbolism in these Hebrew stories that point to Jesus. The Old Testament only makes sense in its entirety because of Jesus. And I would encourage you to take the scriptures seriously, not because they're in the Bible, but because Jesus took them seriously. And I would say to you this morning, without hesitation, Jesus loves you, this I know. I have no problem telling you that. I believe it's 100% true. Jesus loves you, this I know. For John, who watched him die and a few days later had breakfast with him on the beach, told you so. For Luke, who thoroughly investigated the events and claims of the life of Jesus and wrote it down meticulously, accounting this historical event based on eyewitnesses, he told you so. And Paul, a Pharisee who originally set out to shut the whole movement down and ended up meeting Jesus and made it his life mission to tell everybody else about him, he would tell you so. Jesus loves you, this we know, because the original followers, the early church, they were martyred believing it was so. And Jesus loves you, this we know, because the early church defied an empire and the temple because they were convinced it was so. And so the reason you should consider following Jesus is not because the Bible says so. It's not about the Bible, a book. It's about the who, and that who is Jesus. Jesus was who he claimed to be, punctuated by dying on the cross and raising from the dead. He predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, and there are eyewitness accounts documenting all of those events. And they didn't just document what they believed. They documented what they saw, what they experienced. So if you've walked away from your faith, if you've you know, pushed Christianity aside because you have a hard time, as I have, and reconciling a 600-year-old genealogy with a 4.5-billion-year-old earth or something that you learned in biology or archaeology, I would just invite you this morning to reconsider because the issue has never been, is the Bible true? The issue has always been, who is Jesus? Christianity did not disrupt the Roman Empire because of a true Bible. It did it because of a risen Savior, and a risen Savior that loves you and died for your sins to prove it. 
So if you've stepped away from Christianity because of the Bible, I would just ask you to reconsider because you may have stepped away unnecessarily. And if Jesus rose from the dead, and maybe you're not there yet, man. He's, you're not sure about that Old Testament stuff. You're not sure about the book of Revelation. It certainly gets weird. But if Jesus rose from the dead and it was documented, how do I start to step back towards God? And if you're going to reconsider the idea of God, I'm convinced the best place to start is Jesus. And so next week, we're going to ask the question, what did Jesus say about God? Let me pray for us. Lord, first and foremost, thank you for the Bible. And I pray that I haven't done anything today to discredit it because I am so thankful for it and will continue to devote my life to learn it and teach it. But Lord, you're not that book. You're you. That book is about you. It's not you. And Lord, sometimes we have to separate those two things. So Lord, I know in this room there's a ton of people that have dealt with doubt because we all have dealt with doubt. And maybe there's going to be some things that we can't explain. That's probably always going to happen. So, Lord, I, I pray you would reveal yourself not just through Scripture, but may it be in some other ways that would be affirmed by Scripture but are just completely outside of that book. Reveal yourself to us in ways that we can't deny, that we can't argue with. Lord, we know that you love us. We know that Jesus loves us, not because the Bible told us so, but because he died on the cross for our sins in our place so we could have a relationship with you. And we thank you for that. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.